Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. Brendan here with Mark, episode 91. We're getting close to that magical 100 mark. Gee, I never thought we'd get to 10, let alone 100. But there you go, we're on our way. And yeah, we'll have to think about a, a special <laughs> prize for a listener for, for episode 100 because it's fast approaching. So Friday, July the 19th. Well, been a bit of a funny week, Mark, as we were chatting off off air before the episode. Gee, a few, few things happening. Um, one thing that's happening with me, mum, my mother was um, my mother took a bit of a fall. Being it's the usual thing, isn't it, with the oldies? And it, all I can say is it sucks getting old, <laughs> doesn't it? And um, poor mum took a bit of a fall. She still lives at the house I grew up in on her own now. Dad passed away a few years ago, and. Um, she went to grab something. I think it was her dinner to get some food out of the fridge or the freezer and um, took a bit of a tumble. And um, being of the generation she is, Mark, that don't want to bother anybody, she uh, she was in great pain with one of her legs and she crawled all the way back to her bed, <laughs> which was probably about um, 10, 15 metres um, to, to the bedroom and thought oh I'll just lie down for a little bit and, and lay down for about two or three hours in in a lot of pain and then finally phoned up one of my one of my brothers and his um he phoned my sister's daughter who is a mid just just uh, qualified for, as a midwife not that that'll help mum at the moment but but um she's um She's a nurse and um, she rolled up pretty quickly. This was about three days ago and um, took mum to the emergency. And um, she's been in hospital a couple of days. But the good news is, uh, I think it was three days actually, she um, she was home today and um, lots of scans and MRIs and CTs and um, they couldn't quite work out what was happening. They think it was mainly soft tissue injury. She did fracture a pelvis and a right hip at one stage from a car accident, but this was the other leg. Um, and I think she's got a bit of arthritis in the foot as well, but she's home and happy to be home again. But yeah, it's, um, it's not something that any of us look forward to getting old and, and things wearing out because, well, I certainly know things are starting to wear out already with me, Mark. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, I'm the same as you, Brendan. There's bits of me that are just like, not and the other thing you notice. Not only do they yes, more, they take definitely. I've, to recover when I fell over it's myself. So, well, actually, what did I did something stupid? I don't know what it was. I don't think I fell over. But anyway, I bruised my. I had a big bruise on my knee, and um, yeah, it's still there. It took about three, it's three or four days, and it takes a lot longer to sort of settle down, doesn't it? Um, as you start to get in um, past twenty years of age. <laughs> That we are, Mark. Yeah, so that's what's been happening with me. I've got a case I want to chat to about, chat to you about as well. That I, s- I had a fun surgery day today, Mark. But um, um, what have you? Have you been? You know, it sounds like you've been a bit. You've been running around a bit. I have been doing a bit of racking up the kilometres, Brendan. I am. Um, I on 
Saturday. I packed the car up and um, made the big journey down to uh, the Charles Sturt University at Wagga Wagga in the Riverina. Um, it was the um, uh, welcome to the profession evening for the 62 graduates, well, they're graduands, aren't they, until they get their testimony. Um from uh, the final year of Charles Sturt's veterinary program. Yes. Um, and I was privileged to be able to um, provide them with, uh, uh, to lead them in the veterinary oath. We have a veterinary oath here in New South Wales and um, and I had the distinct uh, honour of um, leading them in reciting the oath. And, and Brendan, it sounds a bit, I know it sounds a bit corny, it sounds a bit... Um, a bit, uh, I don't know, um, but geez, it was, it's a really powerful thing to hear the, uh, the passion and emotion and conviction of, uh, of a group of young people like that who are, who are, you know, they, it was a bit like graduation at Hogwarts, was it? And <laughs> it was a lot like that. There wasn't <laughs> quite so many things floating in the air, but, um, but yes, Perhaps later on in the night, night there was a few things it, floating, through, floating through the air, but not in the air, Mark. <laughs> yes. um, and that's a bit of a – so how long does that take you to drive out there, did you say? Um, um, it's a six-hour drive um, uh, from, from where we are. So um, it's a – you know, I don't mind – Sitting in the car, and of course, there's some very interesting podcasts I can listen to as I cover those kilometres. Um, so, uh, so the time is not wasted, and um, certainly being able to spend it with those uh, those um, fresh, green, bubbly veterinarians. Ah, uh, wait till they wait till they've been out a few years, Mark, and um, they get a few a few stains on their tops and um, a few surgeries under their belt, and um, yeah, then they'll realise what what it's all about. But it's, it's it's a good profession, isn't it, Mark? It's a good profession. You have a just be, while I remember, you you wanted to do a shout out to a, an email that we had from a a, a, um, a listener, Anna. I did, I did indeed. Um, Anna has sent us an email, um, and uh, Anna, uh, if I understand correctly, runs a web page which uh, focuses basically on. Um, on uh, water, um, particularly on drinking water, and with a focus in the um, developing world, um, and um, and in particular, you know, with our interest in um, the diseases of exotic animals, she noted that we did have an interest in salmonella, and she flicked us her uh, her, her um, page, the page that she's put onto the Connect for Water um, website, which talks about um, uh, salmonella, particularly in terms of um, water supply and the, the, uh, the, the potential danger that um, uh, contaminated water can present to um, humans and dogs and cats. And, um, and yeah, I just uh, I, it's one of the things about being involved in this podcast, Brendan. I didn't think you would tolerate me for nearly a hundred episodes, um, but it's a surprise to me, first of all, that people listen to us at all. But 
even more that people reach out to us and um, seek out those connections. And this is one of those ones where um, Anna seems to be um, doing a, a wonderful thing, spreading good quality information for people all around the world. And, um, yeah, I'm happy to give a shout-out and we'll stick that link on our uh, our homepage, our webpage, and um, and uh, hopefully spread that information a little bit. Further. Yes, I've already copied that link, Mark, ready for the show notes. And, yeah, Connect for Water is, as you say, the website. It's a social impact, not-for-profit foundation um, helping um, addressing safe water needs for people. But she, um, some of the um, topics or, or um Pages within that website um, um, are such like the one you mentioned um, that was a really good summary of, of salmonellosis and um, the importance of clean water. So, yeah, thanks for that um, email, Anna. I've, I've got a couple of shout-outs as well, Mark, um, but before I do that, yeah, I just want to talk about that case I, I did today. I had a, a real crack of a, of a rabbit with um, with tapeworm cysts. Um, and I can't remember whether we spoke about these before. It's probably the biggest one I've ever seen as far as, well, it's a big rabbit as well, but um, a huge multi um, soanurus tapeworm um, cysts um, within this rabbit um, over the hip and thigh area that had um, um, tinea cerealis and um, you know, um, in between the mus- muscle um, and the fascia, and um, yeah, it was a it was massive, and um, just kept pulling them out and pulling them out. So I managed to get most of them out without breaking the the bladders that they're formed in, um, and um, flushed everything out um, for us. But there was a huge, huge hole left in there, and this was an interesting. It was a rescue rabbit that. Um, we we saw as part of one of the um, rescue organisations that we deal with, and they had fostered this rabbit out about two years ago, and the per- person that had fostered the rabbit to had had given it away or, or or sold it to somebody else, which is they're not supposed to do, and they'd lost track of it. Um, so it must have been must have been in a, in a family or in an area where it was sort of um, wandering around in out in the backyard or in in the um in the paddocks and um had had taken up on some um tapeworm eggs and become that intermediate host yeah so it was a beauty mark i have to send you the photos of it because um I, yeah. some of these surgeries are you know they're just you know when you get those surgeries that you just think i'm really looking forward to this and that was one of them because as soon as i opened up that um um, flocculent sort of um, um, feeling mass. Um, I could see those scoliosis within, and I knew it was a tapeworm cyst, and it was going to be good fun, and it was. So that was my surgery today <laughs> that I that I thoroughly enjoyed, Mark. But yeah, so um, some days you get good days, and other days you do surgery, and everything goes wrong, doesn't it? Um, with, with the cases, and you think, why the hell am I doing this? I'm I'm no good as a vet, and. Um, then it swaps around again the next day. So, yeah, we have good days and bad days, don't we? And speaking of good days, yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask, do you often <coughs> see those? Um, I've been uh, fortunate <coughs> never Excuse catch me. any of them. That's okay. Um, never to, to see any of them. Do you see them often? Sorry, I, I I thought I put my, my uh, myself on uh, mute there, Mark, but I obviously coughed, coughed straight into the microphone. And then put um, yourself on mute. Exactly. So I did it in the opposite way. I should have. Um, yeah, we see we see a few. I don't know, probably 
we may not see any for six months and then we might see a few in a, in a week um, or in a month. Um, so not not rare, unusual, but not rare, Mark. Yeah, do you do you see many? I can't say I've, we've ever seen one, so. Ah, okay. It's another one of those northern versus southern th- yeah, southern things, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll send you, I'll flick you the photos um, after we've uh, recorded the podcast, Mark. Um, so my shout-out is to two people um, and actually the two of my mentees, the people that I helped mentor for the recent exams. Um, one is to Amanda who sent the chilies, Mark. Um, the chilies arrived and I planted them. Excellent. So, um, I've got. To, I forgot today to go outside and look at the pots and see if they've they've actually um, popped out yet. Um, they've they've what's the word? <laughs> they have germinated. Um, whether they've germinated yet. Um, so I need to um, look at that. And gee, I tell you what, some of the chili. And she sent a whole a little container of the chilies as well. And um, I looked up the chilies. She sent about four or five different varieties, and yes, it is a Scoville scale, as she said, Mark. And I think one of the chilies that she's given me seeds, and she sent some actual chili flakes, um, was something like one and a half million oh, Scovilles, Mark. So, so, I think something like the third hottest chili in the world. So, um, yeah, it's certainly going to give me a run for my money. Um, so, I'm looking forward to um, chomping down on some of that, Mark, <laughs> in the future. Um, so, that's um, shout out to Amanda. So, thank you very much for those chilies. And the second one is I just received, and I've just got it in front of me here now. Um, from Olivia. Olivia sent me a, a lovely little package arrived at work today to thank me for being um, for mentoring her for the exams, and it was a little a little pack of boutique beers, Mark. Um, so I was very chuffed with that, and I'm at the moment just having a little sip of a Bolter Strong Pale Ale, and. Um, yeah, um, I love that. I love the marketing blurb they have on all these beers, Mark, about all the different um, tastes in there: bitter, smooth, malt, silky, fruity, flowery. It's got everything. This strong ale. Um, so yeah, and um, you know, after the fifth ale, um, I tell you what, it does have all of those things, Mark, um, and more and more. No, so I'm just um, having one of those at the moment. So thank you very much to. To Olivia, um, very much appreciated. So they're my two shout-outs, Mark. So I think we need to jump into some new stories. Um, the first one um, is, uh, well, it, it, has a, it has to do with insects, it has to do with wildlife in Africa, um, and it has to do with um, navigation. So the story is, uh, reveals, the story reveals um, some of the surprisingly sophisticated ways that dung beetles navigate the world. Um, and and I, I, it's actually been a little bit of a surprise to me to read this because um, I initially thought that um, their, their nature, their, the, the process that they use to identify the, the uh, piles of dung on which they... Uh, um, are dependent um, was to just use the scent detectors on their antenna, um, but I'm fascinated to learn um, that uh, scientists have identified additional um, navigation tools um, that uh, these beetles have, um, so that they can find their way around and um, and uh, and take advantage of first of all locating the the piles of dung, but also um, 
you know, rolling them in particular directions to get into the burrows that they bury them in. And so they use things um, like um, the polarised light of the moon that uh, um, Marie Ducker discovered that in 2003, and that was a bit of a revelation at that time. Uh, but now it appears that there are additional, um, uh, I suppose you'd call them astronomic uh, landmarks, um, that the, uh, that the, the, the beetles are, um, are pretty keen to, to, to take advantage of. Um, so they definitely use uh, the light, but they also, when light is not directional, and so, for example, if the sun is at the highest point of the sky, um, the, the beetles may then just depend on the direction of the wind. Um, and the interesting thing about that is the way that it does um, allow them to be fairly flexible, that they can take advantage of, you know, different features at different times. So I think... Um, I think that um, it's it's exceedingly, in, uh, what's the right word? Um, it's amazing that insects like this can take advantage of so many different ways to um, to do something as simple as locate the stools they need to use. And they have the brain the size of a sesame seed, according to the article, don't they, Mark? And yet they can navigate like that. Gee, I tell you what, we. Um, our brains are vastly underutilised, aren't they? <laughs> if we, um, well, mine is. I don't know about yours, Mark. So all I can say is that um, it makes me feel dumb when um, you read. They've been At studying those beetles years. for what fifteen years. These researchers, haven't they? Um, so yeah, and um, I'm trying to I'm trying <laughs> I, to construct knew, a, a pun when, based on this, Mark. I'm thinking about a prized ball of dung poo. Well. Yeah. Subheadings <laughs> yeah. for one of the um, paragraphs. I thought you would be in there with, I don't know where how you would generate it, but I thought you'd be in there. Yeah, so I was, I was trying to think about you know a play on the old um, when the shit hits the fan type um, type um, saying, but no, I've lost it, Mark. It's too, it's too <laughs> early in the evening or too late in the evening um, to, for me to be able to conjure up a decent joke about it. But my first article, Mark, is it's a pretty amazing one as well. I think it's about an Arctic fox which has astounded researchers by it, it has walked 2,100 miles in 76 days, which is 3,500 kilometres, a younger Arctic fox. How the hell did they know it has travelled that way? Well, it was a fox that they were tracking, Mark, um, for, as part of the Nor Norwegian Institute for Nature Research, and um, they just couldn't believe it when they um, saw the tracking data um, and they realised that it must have walked that way because it wasn't an area. It was, it was a region where there's sea ice at the time and there was no other way it could have got across there unless it hopped on somebody actually um, went there with a skidoo or something and, and popped it on there. So um, And they couldn't work out how she could travel so fast, so far, because I think she was averaging something crazy, like if I scroll down here, um, it was 46.3 kilometres a day, Mark, um, So and a peak of 155 kilometres in a single day. 
as she crossed the Greenland ice sheet. That's the fastest movement rate they've ever recorded for the species, um, noting it's 1.4 times faster than the previous one-day record of 70 miles by an adult male fox. Um, so the young fox hustled through Gre Greenland, they think, because of limited food options there. Um, because they're not quite, and they're not quite sure what she's up to these days. Because her tracking collar stopped sending data um, in February two thousand and nineteen. Um, so, um, yeah, it was pretty amazing that you know three and a half thousand kilometres, and they assume that she was. Um, um, they that these um, Ellesmere Island foxes main, mostly eat lemons, um, Mark. So, for those of you who um, don't know lemons are a, a, a small rodent they're not the um little animal that you see in the computer game <laughs> that was um very popular many years ago um but the um sad bit is it's all part of the reason why they've they've tracked it it's part of this whole project the climate ecological observatory for arctic tundra which they abbreviate to coat which aims to unravel how climate change impacts Ar arctic tundra food webs and not surprisingly they've been finding that temperatures in the arctic are rising at double the global leverage and they're getting a cascade of changes for many species and ecosystems um so yeah so how's that um not too bad mark um Matt, I, that that map on that yes just is it's incredible so impressive it's incredible is exactly the words from from the the Ellesmere island actual location on the yeah, planet yeah. that that and we'll have have the link to that article where you can see that map on vetgurus.com um yeah it's i don't yeah three and a half thousand kilometers um in 76 days so that's my first article mark what's your second um my next one is the story of the discovery of a uh, a new species of frog from the um from the northern part of uh, West Papua in the mountainous forests. Um, uh, researchers from the Queensland Museum and Griffith University in Australia um, were doing an expedition um, back in 2008 and they discovered a number of species, but one that stood out amongst them was the Pinocchio frog, Brendan. And the photographs of the um, green and gold Pinocchio frog are quite striking um, with, its, uh, with its little um, projection on its nose, its little pointy nose. And, um, and interestingly enough, um, the thing that really struck me about this um this article um first of all was that um the uh, uh the herpetologists actually had found the frog when they were taking a rest from uh field work um and the frog just happened to be it was a bit wet as it often is in that part of the world that was raining um they were taking some shelter um uh, hiding from the rain and what do you know? They look over on the nearest bag of rice under um, under the uh, um, pandanus-lined roof, and there's the frog sitting on the top of the bag of rice. So they made the collection in a break, as it were. Um, rather, you know, they in the rather humorous way of herpetologists, he cracked a joke that said, "You could say it found us rather than we found it." Um, and rather, I don't know, do you think this is an imaginative name, Brendan, like Toria Pinocchio? Yes, they, um, they, didn't, um, 
I didn't think too much, but that what's that there is a striking is. part about this particular. What, what's that, Mark? Well, the, the um, <laughs> the wonderful little rostral projection on our beautiful little tree frog is erectile, and so that's begun, um, you know, quite a uh, um, a bit of. Uh, well, there's quite a few hypotheses as to try and explain why sometimes the little uh, projection pokes out rather rigidly and then other times it droops down a little sadly. So so it's <laughs> obvious that these elaborate structures have some purpose um, and hardly surprising that, um, that some people have proposed, some researchers have proposed that it's meant to attract... Uh, female frogs but um geez i think at this stage uh no one has really um you know figured it out completely um then the other thing that was interesting about the attract the female um theory is that um there's no pattern of success so when these frogs are observed um to uh to uh call and mate um there's no, you know, the longer ones didn't get more, as it were, Brendan. Yes. Yes. I understand what you're saying there, Mark, and I'm not going to comment any further on that one. But, yes, it was quite a fact. Well, they have to go back now, don't they, and they have to study it in quite detail to work out what the story is and why it has that erectile tissue on the Pinocchio nose, Mark. What's your theory, Brendan? Oh, I haven't got a theory about it. I'm steered way clear of it. Although I've got a, a um, maybe maybe a somewhat related story. I don't know um, with my with my second story. And this is how old bras are saving injured turtles. Mark, did you know about this? I had heard this. Uh, yes, I had heard a bit about this story, but I'm very interested to um, hear your your spin on it. Well, it's about. Oh. My my link to it has just gone down. No, I've got it again. Here we go. Um, okay, so at Carolina Water Waterfowl Rescue in North Carolina, they have found that the clasps from the end of bras are particularly helpful for keeping the wires tightly in place when they're repairing shells on, on turtles and tortoises. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I've played with a lot of different variations on, on clips and clasps and, and buttons and things. Um, you know, you're chuckling away I there. I thought you were going to say something about- else. No, not at all. Um, With repairing turtles, Mark, um, one of the things that I've found has been the most useful um, for gluing on, and and I've still use them at work at the moment, are picture hooks, Mark. Um, That's what I tend to use, um, and I still use one. So you use some of these sort of strong picture hooks. And looking at these bra clips, they're pretty damn similar sort of shape, aren't they, to a picture hook? And um, I can see why why they were using them. Um, so they started a campaign. They did a social media campaign and, and said, can you please send in the clasps from old bras? I expect that they probably got a lot of old old bras being posted in complete um, rather than just sending the clips in. But um, it really took off their idea and they've ended up with lots of old bras and even people have, have just gone out and and bought the clasps in bulk and mailed them in 
So they were overwhelmed by the donations there for the Turtle Rescue Group, but um, and they've got a couple of pictures of, of the use of these clasps on on the um, repair there. Although I must admit, Mark, um, I don't know whether you've seen the the article there. One of um, the the picture of the the turtle um, further down the page there with the clasps on there. There's a fair deficit. Um, um, I presume this is the before shot. I hope um, with this particular turtle there, because um, I don't think the um, the bony deficit has been bridged, so to speak, very well um, in that one. But yeah, that photograph certainly doesn't give you any indication how the um, the disconnected. Brass, distraction brass are actually yes. helping in that situation yes well I, I i presume they're um that's before they put the wire across there that they're going to bring the bring the bones in our position there um but yeah we certainly still use them actually it's probably a topic we should chat about in a future um main topic mark repair of oh, turtle shells and topic to lots of controversy and uh, yeah, yes pros and cons so I'll, I'll add it to the list when we're, when we're chatting about um when you're um going off on a on a monologue um shortly about um, about our main topic so yeah that's my um that's my second article how old bras are saving injured turtles in carolina or north carolina there mark um but um although looking at the f- the first picture there is is a much better one isn't it going back to the first picture in that article it um it um quite a good um little um combination there of um the wire and the clasps um helping put a bit of tension on the on the fractured carapace in that particular turtle there so yeah so that's uh, that's my second and last Story there, Mark. So our main topic this week, I think we were going, it was one you suggested last week um, after we um, finished our podcast, and it's a, it's a good one. It's care of axolotls or, or whatever you want to call them. I mean, the old name people used to mention or, or call them was what, Mexican walking fish, which was the old um, the old, um, the old um, term that people use for them. So we're going to talk a bit about amphibian care and axolotls in particular, Mark. So do you want to kick it off and, and start? I definitely do want to kick it off. I wanted to. Um, we've we've um, we have had the pleasure of looking after many of these animals over the year and um, over the years, and I was particularly pleased uh, at. Uh, I wanted to sing out to Bree Talbot, who um, who did an excellent presentation at the the uh, uh, UPAV conference Adelaide. Yeah. Yep. An outstanding presentation. Um, so uh, it did, when we were talking about things to talk about and species to cover, I thought, you know what, um, that would be a good one. We've seen a lot of them and, and the the uh, both the care and the science of their medicine has, it's, you know, taken, it's a bit of a step up, I suppose, just in our consciousness lately. Um, so I think uh, uh, I think it's an excellent topic for us to um, to pay some attention to. And I think you know, people uh, more and more people keep them as pets, um, and uh, they have a couple of characteristics which uh, make them popular as pets. But um, there are also some characteristics that uh, veterinarians need to be aware of because people become very attached to them. Um, and then when things go wrong, they definitely, well, our experience is people are increasingly seeking uh, veterinary uh, assistance in making sure they can care for them. So um, 
where do we want to start? Do you want to talk about, um, well, the obvious important one is that they, um, what sort of enclosure do they, do they live in, Mark? Well, they live in an aquarium, Brendan, but um, that may not, yeah, they need water. They're, uh, they are amphibians, they're, um, you know, related to frogs and toads. They belong to the, uh, the chordate family, that family of um, uh, of amphibians that look roughly lizard-like, um, the salamanders and newts, um, they belong to them. They're, they're pretty surprising even amongst those uh, animals in that they are, um, what's the, ne- neotonic? Ne- um, yes. They uh, maintain their larval form um, into adulthood so that they, you know, most of those uh, closely related tiger salamanders will look like axolotls in their larval form and then they lose the gills, they get a slightly tougher skin, maybe a different pattern, and they live in, you know, boggy woodland or um, under logs or whatever, whereas the axolotls stay aquatic their whole life in the wild. Um, They don't go through that metamorphosis to a terrestrial life. They um, grow and breed as aquatic um, in uh, organisms in their larval form. So they need to be in an aquarium um, or a water container, a container that holds water. Um, an aquarium is most yeah. frequently the case. But a lot of the places that, uh, you know, they make wonderful um, research animals for a number of reasons. And so there's a lot of places uh, that keep them in tubs as well uh, for the purposes of uh, efficiency and maintenance. But most people who keep them as pets have them in aquariums, Brendan. Yes. And... Getting back to where they originate from, um, the reason why the the other that that name I mentioned that some people still call them the Mexican walking fish is that um, they still do surveys in in the Mexico Lake sort of area, Mark, where they've um, found up to you know between one thousand and six thousand axolotls per square kilometer still um, in some of these regions where they've done um, the surveys over the last five or ten or fifteen years. Um, so um, yeah, that's what that's where that particular origin um, comes from. But we call them axolotls. And so what do we? So we have we have water in there, Mark. So what do we need to do? We need to keep the water clean, and we need to keep it and treat it. I usually mentioned to clients that bring in their axolotl um, for a health check or usually they bring it in first because it has something wrong with them and then we go through all the husbandry. Um, I concentrate on, on on the basics with them and say to them, look, we need to treat it a bit like an aquarium because that's what it is and we need to keep that water clean and um, keep it in a um, in a situation where the, the axolotl is going to survive. So what things do we need to concentrate in keeping that, that water clean um, Correct well, for the axolotl, uh, and this is probably a little bit where they they get themselves into trouble. They they are a little bit different to maybe tropical fish, which require a more complex aquarium setup that uh, that um, you know uh, involves a heater um, and relatively high filtration rates. Um, the uh, axolotl is a um, a cold water specialist, and so they really. Um, they really need temperatures that are, are not 
uh, up where most of the fish, even the cold water fish, um, there's generally we generally want them to have temperatures that are sort of in the range of between 15 and 18 degrees. Um, and certainly if the temperature rises much above um, 20 degrees, and typically if it gets above 24 degrees, there will be significant changes to their metabolism that uh, lead them to be maybe anorexic or make them uh, more vulnerable to uh, uh, a variety of infections and illnesses. So the first one is making sure the temperature is right and we want to uh, make sure that... Uh, and, you know, the key thing there is... Um, is a sufficient uh, mass of uh, water in the aquarium. They don't do well in small volumes of water because those uh, volumes of water are, uh, have um, are more easily changed in terms of temperature, whereas a significant amount of water um, tends to hold that, uh, um, you know, its temperature, it's much more stable. It takes much more energy to change the volume of water. The second thing um, is, yes. uh, you know, you hinted at all those water quality uh, characteristics, um, but the second thing has to do with the movement of water. They they really don't like the relatively high filtration rates that sometimes we can run in uh, many of the tropical um, aquariums and marine aquariums. They, they really like relatively still water, um, and so the filters that might be used in the aquariums where axolotls uh, um, are kept, they really need to have relatively low flow rates. And certainly if those flow rates are high, you will detect changes in the axolotls that suggest they're getting stressed. Okay, so we need to test that water as well, don't we? Or we recommend the clients test it to make sure that we haven't got... Any high, high ammonia, nitrites, nitrates, so very similar to what we'd, um, well, that's what I suggest anyway, that what we'd be doing with a, with a um, with an aquarium with um, with fish in there, Mark. So um, we just get back to the basics with that and say that they would need to at least once a week do the water quality testing and the bare minimum will be um, looking for those aspects of nitrogenous waste but also um, measuring pH as well and also looking at the water temperatures as, as you suggested um, and part of that I was going to say the cycle of life the cycle of life for the axolotl is 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 partial water changes as well what what do you generally recommend Mark for partial water changes um, for for say an axolotl how often and how much well we we generally are aiming at weekly water changes um, and we're generally talking about something of the order of 25% of the the uh, aquarium that we want to change. We always want to make sure that the water that um, that is going back in to the aquarium um, is uh, you know has um, has been dechlorinated either left to stand for some time or has uh, the commercial additives which remove the chlorine um, and uh, and yeah uh, that's generally we start at that sort of once a week 25% of the um, container um, and uh, that seems to while uh, good filtration and um, an appropriate um, cleanliness tends to keep those nitrogenous wastes uh, 
under control, you can't because they're clear and soluble. You can't uh, do it completely. The denitrifying bacteria are going to be overwhelmed at some point, and you do need to um, to do that uh, water change on a regular basis. Yes, well, we recommend pretty similar sort of amounts and duration as well, Mark, um, weekly or so. So we're, we're no different there. And, yeah, I think it's really important to stress to the clients that they don't don't just um, top it up with tap water there. And um, But the good news, as you sort of mentioned there, is if, if they don't want to use those water conditioners, as, as you mentioned, um, they can literally just get a bucket of tap water and let it sit for, you know, a couple of days or so and um, the chlorine will, will dissipate from there as well. So, yeah, they need to do regular water checks is very important with them. What about lighting? Do we need to – what sort of lighting do you recommend and do we need UV or and if so, what and how often and what about other lighting? Yeah, do we put a disco light? <laughs> In there, or what do we well, do, Mark? The thing about them is that they they can't. The water that they come from in Mexico is often very, very cloudy. They don't sort of come from a, a you know pristine mountain uh, river type habitat. Um, they they are often in um, water that's really uh, full of um, silt and suspended solids, and uh, so they're not well adjusted to bright light and I think the key thing it is fairly stressful on them to have those uh, bright fluorescent lights over the the uh, top of the tank Um, and the corollary of that is that you do want subdued uh, lighting but it's also really important to provide them with uh, shelter with some form of hides whether it's a a half of a terracotta um, uh, pot plant uh, pot or whether it's a short PCV tube, um, something that allows them to um, get out of the, the exposed part of the aquarium and and, uh, and hide away. We don't normally uh, recommend ultraviolet light for these guys. Is that something that you do, Brenda? I, I do mention it or I do recommend it, but I tell them that, that I don't think it's... Um, dramatically important and I, I the way i view it is it's providing that opportunity if it, um that that there is some uv and obviously the only way they're going to get that uv if they're pretty close to the to the water surface there and and being a being an axolotl they tend to spend most of the time down on the bottom so um i, I expect that in nature their um their access or exposure or or um absorption of, of, of UV light is probably fairly fairly low mark or, or the time that they are exposed to it but but I cover all bases and I say look put a, a, a low a low um, a low UV exposure lamp um, in there and at least they've got the option of potentially um, go into it or get in access to it if they want to um, you mentioned a really good point about the um, furniture the cage furniture there and you know it's it's such a common mistake i find in in aquarium animals of of any type that they you know humans they buy a fish or they buy an axolotl because they they feel calm watching the fish sitting there in their in their ki- on their kitchen bench um, while they're cooking dinner um, or in the lounge room because um, they they find it relaxing looking at this fish or this this axolotl or this hermit crab um, moving around and yet um, that poor animal doesn't have an area to get away and not be 
um, not um, hide. So the, the animal's actually very stressed and the human animal may be, may be feeling calm, but the um, axolotl isn't. So I think it's really important for all these animals, including the fish, and I see it very, very commonly with people who keep fish and I ask them to bring in a picture of their enclosure, of their aquarium, and there's literally no area for that fish um, to get away from. So same story with the axolotls. I need, like you mentioned, they need an area, a little hide or at least one hide. I usually recommend more than one for most, for all these animals that they've got, again, choice of going into at least two two areas um, and and a little blind, a little area that may be a half to a third at least of the enclosure um, that they've got a, a region where they can get behind that, that um, the human um, or the dog or the cat or whatever that likes to get up to the get up to the tank and and and, and look at the animal that they can get away and, and not feel like they're being um, predated upon so I think it's a really important one to to have lots of cage furniture in there and changing that around a little bit as well um, giving them a bit of a bit of um, environmental as usual you've uh, made an excellent point and I think that um, those refuges I think people do take it for granted that um, that this uh, absolute exposure the, the the animal that would live in a uh, a, um, a pond where there's just some breaks in the water above them but all around the sides they're uh, protected by um, by solid you know base of the pond or plant or logs um, when they're put into an aquarium those predatory the appearance of a predator with you know two eyes at the front and um, and looking at them constantly it, it is a constant stress in their life and without um, uh, barriers and refuge and uh, um, darkness and light um, for them to feel concealed that their, their cortisol levels are constantly elevated um, and I do think you're right that uh, um, shifting those refuges around um, uh, stimulates their exploratory um, uh, the exploratory part of their mind and provides them with environmental enrichment so very good points to make Brendan what is the there is another thing about the enclosures that I always take a lot of time to talk to the clients about, and that's the substrate. Because they are, uh, okay. uh, uh, you know, bottom-dwelling amphibians in the pond, um, they very frequently, um, and they, they're a bit of a, the, the way that they feed is to rapidly open their rather large mouth and um, and create that negative pressure in the pharynx which sucks a prey item in um, and and they are a little bit uh, particularly the domesticated form of the uh, axolotl is a little bit prone to doing that um, randomly and sometimes uh, definitely when there's uh, the stimulation of unexpected movement um, and they they tend to uh, ingest and ask questions later but they'll even do it when there is isn't unexpected movement and um and as a consequence they very frequently will end up um with uh with the ingestion of various sorts of uh substrate and so i think it is really important to be a little bit careful about the the nature of the bottom of the tank and be um be a bit careful about the way that part of it is set up and and sometimes Aquarists who have axolotls need to be a little bit inventive and and uh, artistic to get the 
appearance of a natural environment for their axolotls without necessarily having lots of free stones on the bottom of the aquarium, Brendan. So, well, I think your your um, your new nickname should be Axolotl Mark in jest and ask, ask questions later. Um, that reminds me a lot about you um, when I've seen you out at dinner. Um, so what do you recommend for the substrate then? What, what, what's, what's your specific recommendation? So you, you're hinting at the fact that, that they'll often end up ingesting um, the substrate regardless of what the substrate is on the floor there. Um, so there's, well, two parts to the question. One, do you see many axolotls that get into trouble with this and you end up having to treat them either medically or surgery? And secondly, what do you recommend to the clients to have as a substrate to help prevent any issues with the ingested substrate? I will answer those questions the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> the way. We do, um, we, we recommend um, that uh, if you're going to have a movable, unfixed substrate, that you use stones that are bigger than the axolotl's head, um, that you don't use pebbles, and you definitely don't use pebbles that are sort of um, roughly sm slightly smaller than the distance between the axolotl's eyes because almost invariably they will be eaten. Um, we tend not to use uh, sand. Sand tends to um, maybe not get ingested as much, but um, pro certainly provides an unfavourable environment for appropriate filtration and water quality. Um, so generally we're suggesting to people that they use, you know, relatively large um, little rocks rather than pebbles. If they do feel the need, for some form of substrate um, that is, you know, maybe more traditional. And we like them to get, uh, um, before they set the aquarium up, maybe to whack some um, silicone on the bottom of the aquarium and then put the pebbles into the silicone so that they're fixed in place, Brendan. And so uh, even if the axolotl has a bit of a snap, a bit of a, um, a wide open mouth and yes. suck some of that stuff in, that they don't get the pebbles into their mouth. Um, so unfortunately, despite this advice widely given and uh, proclaimed from the top of every soapbox I can find, um, we still do see large numbers of axolotls who have um, foreign body ingestion. Um, and we do get to treat quite a lot of them, Brendan. Sorry, let me turn myself <laughs> off mute as usual. So how do you go about doing that? What's your standard workup for those? We radiograph them. Um, we definitely uh, do so a how do you do that? good thorough physical exam first um, and uh, palpating them often gives you a good clue that something is going on inside. Uh, but then we'll place the axolotl. Um, one of the great things about axolotls is that um, that they, they have multiple ways to absorb um, oxygen, to respire. Um, they obviously have those uh, filamentous gills that they hang on to, those uh, um, gills that are features of larval uh, chordates, and, um, and they maintain those all through their life. Uh, but they also have rudimentary lungs, um, so you'll often see axolotls swim up to the surface and take a bit of a gulp, um, particularly as the temperature rises and the water carries less oxygen concentration and um and they also uh can can uh 
transfer oxygen across the surface of their skin, the so-called cutaneous respiration. So the good thing about that, those multiple uh, sources of uh, oxygen transfer, is that um, they can cope uh, being out of the water as long as they're um, wet, as long as they're maintained wet, they you can put them into a shallow, you know, plastic box, a lunch box type arrangement. Um, just make sure there's enough water in there that um, that they can be splashed with, and you can zap an X-ray through them pretty well to get a good view of what's going on inside. Yes, and interesting related to that topic, um, I have seen axolotls over the years that seem to have more developed skills with dealing with breathing um, from air, Mark, than the water. And that's um, axolotls have been kept in a really low oxygen environment and they spend much more time um, gulping air and also coming to the surface and helping the exchange of air that way um, and getting oxygen that way. Definitely. Have you seen that? So you see changes in the gills with those as well? Um, with those ones. They definitely, um, you know, the... the um Often the water quality changes that accompany the higher temperatures where they struggle to get the oxygen, um, those things lead to damage to the very fine filaments and so they get stumpy looking um, gills. Um, they uh, can't get as much transfer that way so you will see them swim up to the surface and take those gulps much more frequently. Yes. the. Oh, I've got one more question about those um, those stones stuck in the um, stuck in those axolotls. Um, how do you, how do you go with the surgeries um, with them? How do you approach the surgery? Um, but before I say that, I just want to mention one other general general husbandry aspect, and that's um, about keeping axolotls with other axolotls. And I generally recommend that they don't um, house um, that they do house them individually um, because unless you're prepared to have um, adults that um, predate it. A bit like bearded dragons, I treat it like uh, Mark, in that, you know, once you get a, a bigger one, um, you'll, you'll tend to get a, a bigger and older one um, predating or bullying a smaller one or even predating upon the um, the other one as well. So um, fights are not... Are not um, infrequent is what i'd be um be saying um so and you're exactly it is a a uh, it's probably one of the the anthropomorphisms of clients that uh that i struggle with a little bit because um whether it's bearded dragons or axolotls they um they are largely solitary uh, they're not social animals unless they uh know being reproductively active and that's for a relatively short period of time but they will very frequently the bearded dragons will fight and the axolotls their response to movement is just to bite and try and eat it and so um, they definitely will uh, um, you know take a limb off a like-sized um, uh, axolotl and completely consume a smaller one so um, so I do I agree with you entirely they're solitary animals and they have no uh, their quality of life is not impacted by an absence of those social interactions which sometimes include cannibalism yes so how do you go how do you approach removing those foreign bodies in the gastrointestinal tract well we do use two techniques we certainly um, in the in 
the, the world of um, wildlife ecology, it always surprises me how efficiently those wildlife ecologists can uh, take a syringe of saline and uh, and a, a short, soft tube and um, and flush the stomach of a whole variety of um, reptiles and amphibians to collect uh, samples to analyse the the diets of those uh, animals and um, and certainly there are times with particular sized um, pebbles, the relatively smaller ones that you know a little bit bigger than gravel, but um, you can feel a few of them in there. Where we would attempt that sort of procedure, where we would um, maybe sedate the axolotl a little bit. Um, and um, and then try and instill a tube, pass it to the stomach and flood the stomach gently with saline to see if we could flush them out that way. It does tend to be much harder when there's just one big one, one or two big ones, and so we will anaesthetise them. They are excellent surgical candidates. They are under the appropriate conditions of uh, temperature and water quality. They heal up beautifully um, and so uh, we would definitely uh, uh, lob on in there open the coelom and uh, and get into the stomach and get the foreign body out then we probably had a couple of um, the other thing that we'll you know the substrate is one thing but um, we have some clients who feel the need to put artificial plants in some of the aquariums and we've had a couple of times where we've had to uh, get those sort of you know, spiky arrow-headed shaped things that get into the, the stomach. We've had to um, do surgery to get those out. But they're excellent uh, patients and they uh, they make excellent, uh, they, they heal up beautifully, Brendan. Excellent. Yeah, I've had a few that um, I must admit, I'd, I must flush, try the flushing technique, Mark, more often um, with them because what I tend to do, is is um, trying to almost do a blind grasping of um, of almost <laughs> those um, feet, fetal type um, yep, you know yep. forceps um, a variation on those and I use those to try and um, to try and blindly grasp the um, the stones that are sat there in the stomach um, so yeah but I must do the flushing technique you thought I was going to say the toothpaste technique for a minute there didn't you um, <laughs> I was worried we were going to squeeze somewhere inappropriate it. Um, it is certainly one um, one area where I would not be recommended the toothpaste <laughs> technique in um, in trying to remove these from the axolotl. So yeah, um, so what what? Well, we almost ran out of time, but can, um, just briefly, any other sort of gen um, common problems you see with them? Um, there's there's probably one other. Uh, there's a couple of things that I I would um, that I that I know they, they it sounds a little bit. Um, uh, counterintuitive but and particularly counterintuitive for uh, for those of us who work so hard to maintain a relatively high thermal environment for most of our other reptiles and amphibians um, but one of the things that we would routinely do when we have uh, a stressed axolotl which might have those stubby uh, gills and the curled tail the, the tail curled around a little bit at the tip not pointing straight out is a good indication there's a problem is to whack them in the fridge for a little while brendan that um lowering the temperature to lower than their normal um uh, uh, 
their normal sort of thermal zone, that 15 to 18, to get them down around five or six in the refrigerator, um, that, um, that seems to buy you significant time to run some tests, to uh, take some samples, to contemplate what you're going to do next, um, getting their metabolism uh, in the appropriate zone and slowed um, often does um, a wonderful job of getting things set up and particularly because a lot of the problems they have, if the temperatures are high, um, then they very frequently end up with, um, with uh, you know, the, the, the typical culprits, Pseudomonas or Aeromonas from um, the, the uh, environment uh, will set up shop in the compromised organism and they'll end up with an infection. And changing the temperature does seem to slow the progress of those things to, so that you can identify that's going on and begin antibacterial therapy. Interesting. You're a braver man than me, Mark. I, I must admit I, I rarely, if ever, have um, shoved an axolotl on the fridge. Um, I mean, although having said that, the way my nurses are, you know, they'd probably, they'd probably pull it out and eat it before they um, before they thought it was an axolotl because <laughs> um, they tend to get quite ravenous um, in my clinic. I think we forgot one other thing um, as far as the general care, Mark, which we should jump back to, and that's diet. What do they eat? What, what do you recommend feeding um, the client should be feeding their axolotls? Well, they're... Um, obligate carnivores. <clears throat> they uh, live in the wild. They live off, uh, you know, a variety of small freshwater um, uh, insects and vertebrates, um, and um, and so just like uh, most of our obligate carnivores, a variety of um, small insects and uh, um, uh, maybe even particularly, I I really like. Um, uh, adding to their diet, um, the, the the earthworms we get, they have a, a particularly good pro profile of calcium and phosphorus. Um, so, um, but I think many of the the clients I suggest that the the pelleted foods that are, the sinking pelleted foods that are designed for carnivorous fish, um, sometimes. Um, trout chow is, uh, um, but there's a number of different commercial brands. They're excellent. They're an excellent basis for the diet for um, uh, for uh, axolotls. One of the things I would definitely advise people to steer clear of, and you can still find on the web uh, advice that these obligate carnivores get strips of beef or uh, beef heart or whatnot. Yes, um, and. Feed the meat, they, yes. They will definitely run into health problems. And it's not as pronounced uh, as, you know, they don't develop the same sort of metabolic bone disease as our bearded dragons will, but they definitely do have uh, health issues associated with that um, poor uh, one-dimensional diet. Um, and so it is important to emphasise to people that, uh, you know, a, a balanced pelleted food for carnivorous aquatic organisms or a variety of um, insects and prey items. Um, uh, uh, I'm not a big fan of feeding them live fish, um, but, um, you know, whole prey items that have been uh, humanely and suitably uh, um, killed are an excellent diet for these animals. Yeah, a large variety of um, whole um, insects and 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 um, 
as many different types as well as what I usually recommend to them for, yeah, earthworms and, and moths and bugs and spiders and beetles um, as well as as well as well some commercial food as well. Um, I must admit, Mike, we do see a reasonable number of, of, or I do see a reasonable number of axolotls that are brought in as my axolotl is sick and they're, they do. They are incredibly um, emaciated. Um, they have very small limbs. Um, you can see the spine in the animals very, very readily. Um, and if I radiograph them, they have an extremely poorly, um, poorly calcified skeleton mark. So um, I'm very suspicious of those ones that they are. They are um, metabolic bone disease cases. And on further questioning the clients, uh, uh, most of those seem to be ones that are just fed on, yeah, they're fed a bit of mince or chicken, chicken, chicken flesh um, and, and those sorts of products, which is not what you should be feeding your axle at all. Yeah, so... I think there's some other conditions that we need to cover with axolotls, but we'll have to um, add that to another another podcast, Mark, because I think our time is just about up and and our outro man is um, wanting to get to bed. So um, we'll let him do his thing, Mark, and um, we'll talk to everybody next week. And um, thanks for listening. to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time